meeting. During the coronavirus disease emergency, this committee will convene remotely until the committee is legally authorized to meet in person. Public comments will be available on each agenda item. Each speaker will be allowed two minutes to speak. Comments or opportunity to speak during the public comment period are available by calling 415-655-0001, access code 2489391-5052. The password is 1234. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussion, but you'll be in but you'll be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, dial star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your television or radio. Alternatively, you may submit your public comment by email to ocoh.con at sfgov.org, and it will be forwarded to the committee and will be included as part of the official files. Please note that this meeting is being recorded and will be available at sfgovtv.org. Thank you so much, Secretary Hom, and welcome everyone to the Our City, Our Home Oversight Committee. It is Thursday, February 23rd, and we're going to call this meeting to order. So we'll start with roll call. Member Catalano. Good morning here. Member Cunningham. Denning. Absent. Vice Chair D'Antonio. Absent. Member Friedenbach. Here. Officer Ledbetter. Absent. Member Reggio. Is no longer with us, correct? That's correct. And Chair Williams. Here. All right. So we do not have quorum. So we will be going through presentations today, but not having um, any votes. So we're going to now move into voting to excuse the absences for uh, Vice Chair D'Antonio and uh, Data Data Officer um, Ledbetter. So if there's a motion, or actually, we can't do that. <laughs> As I just said, we can't vote to excuse them. So we'll just move forward um, to our land acknowledgement. All right, so we acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatusha Lone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatusha Lone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities of the caretakers of this place, as well for all peoples who reside in the traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. All right. So we'll now move to public comment on items that are not on the agenda. Secretary Hom, is there any public comment? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415 655 0001, access code 2489 391 5052 then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. I'm checking the attendee list now for any hand raised for public comments. And I do not see any, so there are no public comments for this agenda item. Thank you so much, Secretary Hom. Um, so now we'll move to um, uh, Deputy City Attorney uh, John Givner. He will be discussing with us the legal rules of governing remote access to our public meetings. So I'll turn it over to Deputy Attorney uh, Givner. Thank you. Nice to see you all again. Um, so the reason I'm here today is because, as I think all the members of the, the Oversight Committee know, the, the mayor's order... The mayor in March 2020 uh, declared an emergency for a, related to the COVID pandemic. 
and has issued a number of different emergency orders under that authority um, over the last several years. In March 2020, the mayor issued an order that required all commissions and boards and advisory bodies like yours to meet remotely. Um, and over the last few years, uh, the mayor has issued new orders that have modified some of those rules. So some charter commissions have been meeting in person for the last year or so. Uh, as of February 28th, the mayor's orders regard emergency orders regarding public meetings are going to terminate. And what that means for you is that the your meetings going forward, beginning on March 1st, will need to be in person. Oh, uh, okay. Let me, in a, oh, great. In a in a physical location, um, just like the board of supervisors or city commissions meet in person. Uh, and Jessica asked me to join this meeting briefly just because the OCOH Oversight Committee hasn't ever met in person. And so it's going to be a new uh, new process for you. Um, so I thought I would just give you a, a just a quick overview of what that what that looks like or what that's, that's going to look like beginning March 1st. And then, of course, happy to answer any questions here today or offline if you have any going forward. Um, so the your meetings will need to be in a physical meeting place. I'm not sure whether you've, you've already set that up, um, but it will probably be a meeting room in City Hall or another, another city building. Um, in order to attend the meeting, participate, vote, count toward a quorum, uh, a member of the committee has to be in person in that meeting room. Um, with, with two exceptions that where, when you can meet remotely. One exception is if, one, if you're a member with a disability uh, and your disability makes you unable to, to attend meetings in person uh, in, in City Hall, you can request a reasonable accommodation under the ADA by reaching out to DHR. They consider those accommodation requests and determine whether you can be accommodated. That's one exception. And if DHR grants an accommodation, then you can call in remotely to the in-person meeting. The second exception is for, for members who are on parental leave following the birth or adoption of a child. Uh, I don't know if any member is currently on parental leave, but if someone is or will be in the future, feel free to reach out and we can talk about, uh, there's some limits on how many remote meetings you can attend even when you're on parental leave. Uh, but that is the only other exception. Across the board otherwise, you have to be in person. If you, uh, at two days before the March meeting, if you, uh, test positive for COVID or have an exposure, you and you and you can't come to the meeting. You just have to be absent. You can't call in and participate remotely. Um, so that's the big, the 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 biggest change is that all the members have to be in person. Uh, members of the public will be able to attend your meetings in person also and make remote and make public comment in person just like old school 2019 style. Um, the 
members of the public who have disabilities that restrict that restrict their ability to come to city hall and make public comment in person can request a reasonable accommodation under the ADA to allow them to make remote public comment by calling in probably on on a webex platform like this and giving remote public comment at your meetings um, and uh, Jessica or Mary or others who who work with the with the committee will be handling those requests off offline uh, so that people who need an accommodation can can be set up to call in. And then finally, uh, the city administrator is probably going to be issuing some guidance uh, in the near future, maybe today, maybe early next week, um, uh, regarding possibly uh, taking remote public comment or offering remote public comment as an option uh, for people who don't have disabilities and have not received an accommodation. Um, so you can expect, I think fairly soon, some, some policy guidance uh, about recommended practices for allowing additional remote public comment for people who just want, would rather call in on WebEx rather than coming in to, to give remote, to give public comment in person. So that's the, that's, that's, that's basically the way it looks. You're in person, people can make public comment in person, and some, some people will be able to, at least will be able to make public comment remotely. So what you'll do in a meeting like this is you'll hear from me or, you know, your presenter, or you'll have a discussion, you'll open it up for public comment, people in the room will give comment, then you'll open it up for remote public comment by people who have received an accommodation and, and are calling in on WebEx. And then you'll probably open it up for remote public comment from other people who have not requested an accommodation and are calling in on WebEx. Uh, and it may be choppy at first as you get used to it, but uh, we're all working to, to be sure we're prepared. And that, that's, the, that's the scoop for me. Thank you so much, Deputy City Attorney Givner. Um, we're going to open it up for questions, um, if committee members have questions. If not, I have a question about the, um, the last piece you mentioned that guidance will be coming out um, in regards to um, folks who don't fall into those other categories around the disability as well as COVID. So just wanted to hear a little bit more um, if there's anything else to share in terms of what are some of the things that are being discussed in terms of who would qualify? Sure. So, so, so this is all this, the guidance. So for members of the committee, uh, there's just a legal requirement that, that you attend in person with those limited exceptions. And so there's no other options for members of the committee calling in to, to, to attend remotely for members of the public who haven't received an accommodation based on disability, there's no law that says that you have, that you must allow remote public comment. And there's also no law that says you can't allow remote public comment. So we're in kind of a, an area where uh, each board and commission will ultimately be making a policy choice about how much remote public comment you want to allow. Uh, as you've probably seen, the Board of Supervisors has been discussing and debating how they're going to 
uh, handle remote public comment in the in the coming months. And there's been and there's kind of an ongoing discussion about what that might look like and how uh, how all all boards and commission it would be. Uh, advantageous, I think, to everyone to minimize confusion if all boards and commissions took the same approach to allowing remote public comment, whether that's uh, an unlimited amount of remote public comment, a more time-limited amount, like, say, 20 minutes per item, or or even more restricted. And so there's just there's some ongoing policy discussions uh, with the hope that, that some guidance will come out with recommendations about how much remote public comment to allow. Just clarifying, so this is only about remote public comment. This is not for members. For right. Case. For members, there there is a law that says members have to be in person unless they have an accommodation that's been approved by DHR based on a disability or they're on parental leave. It, uh, every other situation, members have to be in person. Okay, so I see Member Friedenbach. Yeah, so theoretically then, um, for this body, regardless of what decision the Board of Supervisors ultimately makes, that decision is for them, and then we would we would have to take some kind of vote here if we wanted to continue to allow remote participation outside of disability accommodation. Is that procedurally how it works? I know you're recommending against that, but... Um, I, I, so the board... You're right. The board is considering their own their own rules. It's possible at some point in the future the board could adopt an ordinance that sets rules that will apply to everyone. But that's not the board is not considering an ordinance right now. So you're right. It's up to you. Um, and uh, because March first is coming, and you're not, and you don't have a vote, you don't you don't have a quorum to even vote today on what you're going to do. A recommendation is for the first meeting or even the first few meetings after March 1st that the chair can make a, a decision about how remote public comment will be handled, work with Jessica and Mary to make sure that that's announced on the agenda for your first meeting. Um, and then after that, the committee could have a bigger discussion and vote about how you want to how you want to handle it going forward. Okay, thank you. Yeah, because I think for me, just in my opinion, um, if we can have broader um, access for folks, that that's really helpful. Um, and we don't get a lot of public comment here, so we don't have the same kind of issues that other other bodies have. Um, but we do have, you know, a large proportion of unhoused community members with disability, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just, you know, I think the in-person, actually helps um, in a lot of ways, accessibility for um, unhoused community who may not have phones, et cetera, um, and who WebEx is a little bit more difficult. Um, but I think kind of the the more diverse options we have, the more accessible it is for for folks. But anyway, that I just wanted to put that out there. Definitely um, want to second the comments of mem member Friedenbach and then share with folks, we actually do have a room uh, at City Hall uh, for our meetings, which will be room 416. It's the old Youth Commission room. I know that room well, um, and it's a great room. So I uh, just wanted folks to know um, it's going to be in room 416. Um, but definitely agree um, if we can have some as many options as possible for our public and glad to see that there's going to be consideration 
coming from the Board of Supervisors. And again, I'll just ask it again. So there's no accommodation outside of disability, parental leave, and COVID for members of this body. It, the, only, the only possibilities are a disability accommodation and parental leave. There's not, if you, if you have COVID, you can't attend the meeting remotely. Okay. You'll have to, you'll just have to miss the meeting. The okay. only options to attend remotely are parental leave or a disability accommodation approved by DHR. Okay, it's pretty clear. Any other questions or comments from the committee? Okay, if not, thank you so much, Deputy Attorney Givner, for that update, and we'll stay in touch with you as things progress um, to transitioning back to in-person. So, Secretary Tom, is there any uh, public comment? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call for 15655001, access code 24893915052, then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. I'm checking the attendee list now for any hand raised for public comment. And I do not see any for this agenda item. Thank you so much, Secretary Hom. And again, thank you so much, Deputy Attorney uh, Givner. Uh, we'll now be tabling item three, given we do not have quorum. So that will be tabled to our next meeting and move to item four, which is the presentation of the six-month report on our fund spending and program implementation. So I turn it over to the controller's office at this time. Who's here to represent. Thank you, Chair Williams, and good morning, committee members. Uh, I'm pleased to be sharing the second annual mid-year report on OCO budget and spending. Um, today's agenda is pretty full, even though we were a little bit ahead of schedule. Uh, so I will be moving quickly through the report, uh, but it is publicly available now. And I, my plan is to show you the live, the live report. All right. Um, so it is publicly available now on the committee's website, sf.gov slash OCO, O-C-O-H. Um, and it is spotlight here at the top of the page. So um, yes, our city, our home fund six month report. That is what we're gonna be looking at. Okay, what's in the report? Uh, the report looks at year to date spending and protected projected year-end spending in fiscal year 2022 and 2023, uh, which began on July 1st, 2022, and runs through June 30th, 2023. Uh, so it's one fiscal year, the current fiscal year that we're looking at. Um, just start moving down and we'll see if these have loaded. Is this a good size? Can people see this? Okay, uh, the report begins with the revised budget for fiscal year 22-23. The revised budget includes the revenue that was projected for this current year. Uh, those are the amounts that you worked with last year when you were doing the budget recommendation process, plus any unspent balances from the year before, uh, which means that this these budgeted amounts in this chart um, are greater than the fund balances that, that we budgeted a year ago. Uh, the revised budget does not yet reflect 
the shortfall that the committee learned about at the November retreat. So this is very much a point in time that uh, the shortfall is not yet um, calibrated in the system, deappropriated, uh, but will be. Um, and these are the amounts that we're working with. Going uh, down the page, you can see um, our city, our home fund reserve for fiscal year 22-23. Um, this chart shows the amounts that are being held in reserve, uh, and then which is the total bar, um, and then the orange portion of the bar uh, reflects the impact of the first projected revenue shortfall from November on the reserve balance. Um, and then the gray segment of the bar shows what remains after uh, the projected revenue shortfall is, is removed. Uh, the summary table here at the bottom of the chart shows the amounts that were originally budgeted for the reserve, the revenue projected uh, the revenue shortfall that was projected in November, and then any additional funding that has been put into the reserves to shore up against anticipated budget shortfalls in this current additional shortfalls, perhaps in this current year uh, and next year as well. Moving ahead, uh, you can see the Our City, Our Home Fund expenditures and projections. This is everything all together. Uh, so along the right-hand side of this chart, you can see the total budgeted amounts for each of the service areas. Um, you can see that this chart separates site acquisition costs, permanent housing acquisition as an example, uh, from program operations costs because the way these, um, because these uses are quite different, right? Buildings, and capital costs are high. Um, and because of this, the site acquisition budget tends to build up a large balance of unspent funds and then spend a large uh, sum all at once uh, compared, compared with the program operations, which tend to be uh, more routine and incremental once the funding is in contract and uh, programs are stood up. Those should become more routine. A couple of neat features before looking at the content of this chart. Um, if hovering the cursor over a segment of the chart will show you more detailed uh, amounts. Uh, these are the same amounts in the in the um, chart in the table at the bottom, uh, but you can see, for example, year-to-date expenditures in permanent housing acquisition are one hundred and fifteen million twenty-nine thousand eight hundred and eight dollars. Um, it clicking on that segment. We'll also isolate it down in the uh, the table at the bottom in the summary table, uh, if that's helpful uh, while you're trying to look at it. And then underneath the chart um, is a, a, a box called data notes and sources that just provides additional information if you're curious about where did this data come from and what's in and what's out and when was it pulled, that kind of information is in that table at the bottom. Okay. Looking at the chart, the orange sections, uh, the orange sections uh, show year-to-date expenditures, uh, and so this is money that is spent so far in fiscal year 23. The navy blue sections, uh, portions of the bar show encumbrances, and those are dollars that are committed in contracts or other formal agreements. 
the sky blue sections show additional projected spending by year end. And this is funding that is pending finalization and contract or funding that is earmarked for a project that is in development. Um, and this funding is expected to be either spent or encumbered by the end of the year. Um, and then the gray section of the bar shows projected year end balance. So any balance at the end of the budget year will carry forward in the same service area and program type to become part of next year's revised budget. Ahead. Permanent. Now we uh, now the report moves into talking about each service area, uh, beginning with permanent housing expenditures and projections by population, uh, breaking those out by adult, families with minor children, and youth. You can see here if you'd like to see how permanent housing uh, expenditures encumbered rents projected expenditures for those. Um, and then moving down permanent housing operations, expenditures and projections. This chart and table um, has a really nice feature. It can be filtered, right? So we can see uh, what's in about spending and budgets for all households in the permanent housing section for households with only adults for families with children, and then for youth. You can see that. Um, and then along the left here, you can see um, the program types. So what what is in, uh, what are the program types that make up this budget? Uh, and then what are our expenditures, encumbrances, um, additional projected expenditures and projected year end balances for each of those program types. Uh, and then, of course, the specific amounts appear in the table underneath the bar chart. Moving to mental health. So this table, mental health operations, expenditures and projections, again, shows each budgeted program type, assertive outreach services, treatment bed operations, drop-in services, case management and care coordination, allocated costs, and permanent uh, supportive housing and clinical health services. Um, and then for each program type, the chart shows along the, along the right the total budgeted amount, um, as well as year-to-date expenditures in orange, encumbrances in navy blue, additional projected expenditures in sky blue, and projected year and balances in gray. And I am going through and saying all these things partly just to give you time to look at the chart a little bit. Moving ahead to homelessness prevention. Uh, again, uh, the expenditures in that uh, category have been broken out um, along the left. You can see the program types that make up uh, this section of the budget, targeted homelessness prevention services, problem solving, eviction prevention and housing stabilization, PSH rental subsidies, um, PSH behavioral and clinical health services, and allocated costs. And for each program type, the chart shows along the right, the total budgeted amount, year-to-date expenditures in orange, encumbrances in navy blue, 
additional projected expenditures in sky blue and projected year imbalances in gray. And then the last is shelter and hygiene. Um, and so again, along the left, you can see each budgeted program type, temporary shelter, crisis interventions like safe sleep and safe parking, allocated costs uh, and case management services. And then for each program type, the chart shows along the right, the total budgeted amount for that program type, year-to-date expenditures in orange, year-to-encumbrances um, in navy blue, additional projected expenditures in sky blue, and projected year-end balances in gray. Um, and then at the top of, or at the very bottom of the page, there is a glossary for each of those program types to just, uh, for terms that are used uh, in the charts, just so that, uh, you know, if you need to be reminded as, as um, I often do, what is that exactly? Um, it tells you what does that category mean and what kinds of things are included in it. Um, so this report is live on the OCO website, and so I really I encourage you uh, to spend some time on it. Uh, we do have a few minutes for questions now, and I'm happy to field additional questions later uh, or talk about something in greater depth. But I do want to note just before I open it up for a few minutes of questions is that uh, the departments are about to present implementation updates. And so if you have questions about implementation, um, you may want to hold those until uh, you receive those presentations. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jesse. Um, definitely want to turn it to the committee and I see member Friedenbach. Yeah, thank you. Um, the hand does a new little wavy thing too. Um, <laughs> so um, I didn't understand the second chart, forgive me. Um, the one, or maybe it was the third, but the one about the reserves uh, versus um, uh, this seems like kind of a key thing that I should. Yeah, so there was the, f... okay, yeah, this one. So um, there seems to be discrepancy, like the permanent housing, for example, down on the bottom says the budget of reserve is 16.1. And so what is, what's the additional reserves? Yes. So how did those two charts come together, I guess? Just to clarify, the, the subject heading is at the top, and then I do think departments are here, so I, I may need some support. Um, so this is the budgeted reserve that was in last year's budget. These are the amounts that were set aside uh, last year. Um, this is the projected shortfall that we learned about in November. Um, there, were, there have been some additional reserves added to shore up against anticipated future shortfalls. And then uh, this is the projected reserve balance um, after the. Okay, when where did the, am I forgetting when we did the additional reserves or that was a separate vote or? I don't think that was a vote by the committee. Um, and I think, uh, I think that's a question that departments are gonna need to answer, I don't know. Okay, so that's like maybe additional suggested reserves or something and then, okay. Uh, through the chair, I can take that one. Uh, good morning, everyone. Gigi Whitley, Deputy Director for Admin and Finance for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Um, the 
first column, this budgeted reserves is what we told the committee and the board we were going to save in expenditure savings going into the budget process. Um, prior to the November um, numbers coming from the controller, um, the initial projections were much higher. And I think you heard me say at prior meetings, you know, we've really um, tried hard not to slow down our spending plan or change our spending plan based on um, this year's revenue shortfall and next year's revenue shortfall. So the second column is the projected revenue shortfall. As you can see that that almost essentially right, wipes out all of our reserves in the current year. And then we needed to start setting aside additional expenditure reserves so that we don't have a shortfall in the next two budgets. And we did that um, as programs have been slowing down um, or not yet in contract. We've been capturing those expenditure savings and putting them in a reserve activity. We've also been very lucky with our home key awards and have gotten started to get many reimbursements, including operating funds. So those have generated savings. We were also able to leverage um, some state grant funds on the shelter side. Those have um, generated additional savings. So this additional reserve is what we are not spending now, which isn't part of our expenditure plan and what we hope to use and bring back to you in uh, March and April to show as part of our balancing plan. Okay, thanks, Gigi. That's really helpful. So basically, it would show in our in our proposed budget for the the following years coming up. Okay, I mean the yeah, next. I just want to reassure you in the committee: this has not meant making cuts to the expenditure plan, our spending plan, or our programming. We're still moving full throttle. Great. Yeah, and thank you so much for all the work on this, everyone, and um, Jessica. Um, I guess, and we'll talk about this probably later in the implementation stuff, but. I guess the big thing that's kind of missing, um, which it's, this is very number focused. Um, it's, I think it's great. I love the color coding. Um, I could totally nerd out on it, but, um, uh, uh, and I think one of the things that's missing is number of people served, like the, the human element of things. And um, just as we're, um, I think, uh, I know that would be a whole nother layer of work, but I think it would be really helpful because a lot of the public hyper focuses on the money and they don't they don't know what the benefit is. And so um, that I think is an important component to include um, if possible um, at some point. Um, yeah, anyway, just wanted to put that out there, but thank you, this looks really great. Yes, and um, so the committee knows uh, the the people number of people served, um, the demographics of people and households served, and then uh, the um, outcomes, the proportion of successful outcomes will be a regular feature of the annual look back, but wasn't um, wasn't feasible for this sort of six month view. So. There will be there. There is more reporting to do, and it's part of why we're pairing it with the implementation update, so we can hear what what is happening. Um, because I agree, the the numbers themselves are an important part of the story, but they are not the entire story. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Jesse. Did you have additional um, 
comments in this area or do we want to move to I don't next? I think we can move uh mental health is next I'll pull up slides yes and I believe director Kirkpatrick is with us Morning, members of the committee. Kelly Kirkpatrick here, Director of Admin and Operations for Mental Health SF and Prop C at DPH. Um, so I'm here to add some context and hopefully um, some um, uh, deeper understanding of what the numbers are showing in terms of our implementation of Prop C funding. So next slide, please, Jesse. So um, this is, I just took a screen grab of what Jesse just showed you um, to kind of hone in on the mental health spending. Um, and this is for our operating budget. Um, and DPH has made significant progress in implementing our PropC funded programs this year um, and will continue for the rest of this year. These services really support imp important and vital mental health and substance use services, supporting uh, people experiencing homelessness. Um, as um, uh, uh, Director Whitley shared at HSH, DPH similarly has not paused on the implementation of PropC funded programs at this time. Um, so um, unspent projected year-end balances, the gray sections um, are just due to kind of implementation delays, largely hiring or um, contracting. But as you see in the majority color here that we have made um, strong progress in actually getting a lot of that out the door. Um, I will note that ongoing revenue reductions will require the reduction, sorry, the consideration of balancing options for the upcoming budget process. Um, use of one-time balances like unspent year-end balances, Director Whitley just shared um, for HSH can help maintain service levels in the near term to address revenue shortfalls, but um, either if um, in the long term, the revenue declines persist and or projections worsen um, with subsequent revisions from the controller's office. Program scope um, uh, revisions could be considered um, as well. So with that, let's go on to what we've implemented um, at a glance for you all. Um, and I will note, you know, we have provided much more detailed um, implementation updates for you all in those bi-monthly um, updates as well. So this is some of the highlights. Um, so over the last year, um, and I put in gray at the end of each of them, which category it falls into in the four main um, spending categories for OCO for you all, but these are kind of the, um, the, the programs as we view them implementation wise. So we've fully um, added our seven street crisis response teams. As you know, they provide 24 seven coverage of San Francisco um, as an alternative to police response. Um, they've responded to nearly 80% of eligible 911 calls. Um, to date, SCRT has handled, uh, as of the end, sorry, as of the end of 2022, um, uh, nearly 15,000 calls have been handled by SCRT. We work with SF Fire Department to help stabilize people in crisis. Um, and we are working with DEM and the Fire Department um, uh, on some implementation changes to better serve people um, going forward. We launched the second street overdose response team um, in June, 2022. Um, SORT, as we call it, has responded to um, over 2000 calls as of November, of which um, nearly 1200 involved in overdose and 85 included starts of medication for addiction treatment. I will note that both SCRT and SORT have dedicated follow-up and care coordination teams. So once these initial street teams 
um, uh, support someone in crisis on the initial call. There is a follow-up team of um, case management and peer support that follows up um, to link people to services, uh, provide support, and to help them um, figure out the next level of uh, care, um, the behavioral health, physical health, and or connections to social services. So each of those have dedicated um, follow-up teams. Um, last year, we also released our, um, the Department of Public Health Overdose Prevention Plan. Um, it outlines our commitment to reducing overall over, um, uh, overdose deaths and disparities in Black and African Americans, as well as people experiencing homelessness. Um, this plan leverages the significant funding from Prophecy programs um, to support the plan. This includes um, uh, expansion of safe consumption supplies, low throw threshold, buprenorphine treatment and contingency management, um, as well as expanded access to some of our clinics to support people with opioid use disorders. Um, uh, jumping to our treatment bed expansion, um, we opened last year 160 new residential care and treatment beds, bringing the total new beds opened under kind of our mental health SF and PropC funded umbrella to 250 towards our 400 bed goal. And I'll dig a little bit deeper into that. Um, and this is just year to date. I'll also talk about what our plans are for the rest of the year to more fully implement these programs. Next slide, Jesse. Thank you. Um, we launched the Office of Coordinated Care last year, as well as launched our case management expansion. These services support people disconnected from care or transitioning between settings. Um, often we're meeting people where they're at, especially um, high-risk individuals who are either at the hospital, leaving jails, and needing that support to kind of transition to the next um, uh, level of care, be it behavioral health support, mental health or substance use support, um, social services connections, whatever linkages and bridge services they need to get to that stable um, um, uh, setting that they need. Um, we also began the physical health services through the Permanent Housing Advanced Clinical Services Program, also called FACS. This is the Physical Health and Behavioral Health Services, PSH. Um, the program started, and this is what's joint funded by mental health in the prevention bucket of um, PropSI. Um, in January of last year, we started with 10 uh, pilot uh, locations. We've added 22 in total, at least as of November. Um, and with those 22 sites being served, at least 2,400 PSH households now have expanded access to health care. We also extended the hours of the Behavioral Health Access Center to include weekend evenings. Um, what this does is it supports increased um, assessment of people's needs and providing greater access to substance use disorder and psychiatric medications at our site at 1380 Howard Street. Um, we are imminently launching our weekend hours as well um, at the site. And once we have expanded those weekend hours, we will have doubled the uh, available hours at that um, kind of walk-in site for people to access and get connected um, to treatment. Um, and then finally, we did um, add, and I believe we're in the hiring process for the three Tay and transgender mental health um, clinicians at the Dimensions Clinic, um, serving um, trans and non-binary Tay experiencing homelessness. Next slide, Jesse. I did want to um, speak to some what we have done to address kind of staffing barriers and what we are continuing to do um, to, to address this need. So 
um, between December and March 20, December 21 and March 2022, we hired over 200 behavioral health workers and kind of a hiring uh, push um, to fill crucial roles across our behavioral health care system. And this included long-term staffing that was critical for the Office of Coordinated Care. And there's care coordination services that are really vital to ensuring that people get connected to treatment and care and housing and stay in it with the support services that they need. Um, additionally, we are currently working um, and the controller's office is leading an analysis to provide recommendations to attract and retain qualified behavioral health staff, both civil service and nonprofit. Um, and we're expecting to complete this um, uh, mid-2023 to help inform kind of our programming going forward, both for Prop C and across the behavioral health care um, uh, division and our, our, our critical nonprofit providers. Next slide. Here's our red dashboard. Um, for those of you who follow it, you will see there are a lot of green bars on here representing a lot of progress, the little green kind of um, it's sorry, it's small, but it's like the little green bar means open next to the number. So you'll see that um, a, a vast majority of the beds um, have been opened. Um, we have added over 250 um, new residential care and treatment beds since the end of 2020. In 2023, we plan to open 100 more, which will help us reach the completion of our 400 bed goal, which is represented here. Um, next slide, Jesse. Um, with our success of um, launching additional beds, we have maximized contracting for expanded beds in the short term until we can build long-term capacity in county. So as to our acquisition funding through Prop C, um, we have many um, potential properties that we are actively negotiating the acquisition or construction of to meet the remaining bed goal, transition contracted beds into city-owned facilities in San Francisco and deliver other behavioral health services. So this includes um, uh, expanding critical capacity for locked um, treatment, boarding care, dual diagnosis, working on pre-development for a large new project, um, for a rehabilitated rehab site for residential step-down beds. We are searching actively for permanent sites for our Tay residential program, as well as a permanent location for our managed alcohol program. And then we are, of course, exploring potential sites for the kind of um, vision of an uh, integrated mental health service center. Next slide. I don't know how I'm doing on time, but this is my last slide. I know there's a lot of words on it. Um, you know, DPH, we intend to continue implementation of keep Prop C funded initiatives this year. Of course, you know, this is pending kind of the budget um, picture that uh, sharpens over the next month, but um, we are continuing to add um, Office of Coordinated Care case managers to support justice involved individuals and supporting um, more comprehensively folks um, exiting involuntary holds. As I shared earlier, adding a, a hundred um, additional residential care and treatment beds this year, working to implement the mental health service center, um, strengthening uh, the street-based follow-up care and linkage to treatment as a part of our reconfigured street crisis response team, expanding, um, continue to expand our overdose prevention programs, and then um, launching the behavioral health element of the FACS program uh, with an RFP 
um, hitting the streets imminently, I believe, to get those services um, in our PSH, um, expanding those services in permanent supportive housing. So with that, I am done. I'm happy to answer questions. Thank you so much, Director Kirkpatrick. Um, we're gonna open it up to the committee for questions. I see uh, Member Catalano. You're muted. I, I do not hear you. We can't hear you yet. No. 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 It doesn't say that um, Member Catalano is muted. It's interesting. Yeah. Doesn't have the mute sign, but um, I think she said to move ahead. Do you want to? Okay, we'll move. Exit we'll move and to come back, or yes, we'll move to member um, member Freedom Buck. Apologies. Uh, thanks so much for that update. Um, super helpful, and um, really continue to appreciate the dashboard and how clearly it's laid out and all of that. It's really really great. Um, I don't have questions, just kind of overall, I think, um, I still continue to be concerned around the investment on like the, the balance of the investment of being more, um, kind of temporary one time, um, well, not temporary one time, but like the, a lot of the front end stuff that's more emergency basis rather than ongoing care and like the the um i think uh it ends up from the unhoused persons kind of like their their look there's like all these different people that are that are um interacting with them and it's very confusing and so i just think as much as we can try to organize the system, um, especially for behavioral health around the individual, um, the better. And so there's, um, rather than kind of um, it being more kind of system oriented, if that makes sense. Um, so like if you look at the street crises teams and sort of like people in, you know, they're going to have these different, you know, all these sort of one-off responses and then, um, and then that's kind of challenging. I was really I'm happy to see the follow-up with the um, um, with people who are going to PES, but you know, kind of, I get, I guess this is, you know, we have a, we have some people who are connected to their um, who have the intensive case managers, and then I hear feedback from intensive case managers that the rest of the system's not really communicating with them when things are happening with their clients, like if they're getting 5150 or they're getting displaced from housing or all that kind of stuff, which makes that makes their ability to do their job really difficult. And then, um, um, and so I was wondering how that follow-up on the 5150 kind of interfaces with the rest of the system. And if that's, if the people, you know, it's basically like, are the people getting an ongoing somebody that's gonna help them, um, that's gonna advocate for them um, and really help them navigate this very complicated system. Um, uh, yeah, and and I know that's kind of part of the process, the concept of mental health SF, but it doesn't feel like that's been 
totally implemented. And I know this hiring challenges are, are there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Member Friedenbach. Um, I think that is the exact goal of our Office of Coordinated Care and the services that are falling under that. Um, in particular, you know, we launched the Office of Coordinated Care in the spring of um, 2022. So I think, and there had been faced with some staffing challenges. Um, so I think that the execution isn't at the level um, that we all hope to be, to be that um, consistent linkage um, piece for people um, to, to help um, them navigate the complicated system that we have and to make it less complicated, ideally. Um, so it is both providing that steady linkage for people through this kind of bridge services for folks who don't have intensive case managers, as well as um, um, uh, helping them get to that next level where they have that stable presence of housing or treatment um, and, and case management. So that is the vision um, uh, for the services under um, our Office of Coordinated Care and by increasing our case management capacity as well, really um, providing more people with the opportunity for that stable case management um, once we're able to get them through with kind of our linkage services to the to those goals. So I hear you and I appreciate the feedback and we'll definitely let our team know and do know that that is our intention and vision to move towards that as well. Thank you. All right, uh, member Catalano, I'm wondering if is your sound. Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, yes. So <laughs> um, thanks for your patience and thanks for reading my miming to go to the next uh, speaker. Thank you for the report, um, Dr. Kirkpatrick. I have um, a bunch of small questions, but I'll just focus on maybe the big one um, and leave those for another conversation. So I'm wondering about, you know, there's a lot of new resources you mentioned um, trying to bring on. I'm curious what the rough breakdown, if you know, is between kind of for new positions, civil service and nonprofit staff um, that are going to be brought on and related with the controller's um, work on, on the staffing piece. Um, I'm curious how much has already been flushed out, what opportunity there is to include recommendations, not just for the city, um, but for all of the actors that would be required to address the staffing issue, including philanthropy and the state and academic institutions and um, all of those kind of partners. Um, so I wanted to ask that. Um, I do not know of the propsy funded programming, the split between civil service and um, nonprofit staffing off the top of my head, although I believe that that will be part of the analysis with the controller's office. Um, and thank you for pointing out, we are, folk, we are, as I shared, doing civil service as well as nonprofit, kind of addressing the staffing gaps, but um, I'll definitely um, connect with the controller's office on whether or not they're also, when they're thinking about kind of um, solutions, um, are we thinking broader like those stakeholders that you outlined as well? Um, I think they're all important pieces to this. It's a system-wide issue and um, a statewide issue in many ways, especially for behavioral health um, and clinicians, which I think is where most acutely we're feeling the shortages, both with our nonprofit providers as well as at uh, DPH. Uh, Member Friedenbach, did you have another comment? Uh, yes, sorry. Uh, 
I forgot to ask one thing earlier. Um, we've gotten, a, there's a lot of um, concern around the change of the skirt team of combining skirt and swart and removing the clinicians. Um, and then for, I know for um, skirt, uh, well, and for swart, so they're kind of like the reliance on more of an institutional response with the paramedics. Um, and uh, that, I, I think like the whole paramedic involvement wasn't really part of the original um, concept of, you know, um, at least when mental health SF was being drafted and the community input um, sessions um, around how the team should be designed. I don't think it ever came up from community to include paramedics and that's created a lot more additional costs and created complications in terms of um, regulatory issues around transport and all that kind of stuff. And so now it seems to be shifting even more of a reliance towards the paramedics. And I don't know if, um, and then we at the same time, I think have um, uh, some challenges on the 911 system around for actual medical emergencies that paramedics need to respond to, um, you know, like not having the the response there, and I'm. I think, and I think there is Prop C money going to the fire department now. Then through, through these, if you could maybe clarify that and maybe comment on the on the changes there. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. So yes, there is about twelve million dollars of Prop C money to fund all of SCRT, um, which includes the. Um, uh, funding for the fire department for the EMTs, as well as those follow-up teams that I outlined um, as well. Um, you know, I think that um, the reorganization of the workflow um, for these programs, um, in our mind, will um, it will really enable our behavioral health clinicians to spend more time with people. Um, especially after the acute crisis phase of things, really bolstering kind of that follow-up and linkage piece. Um, and it will really help us understand people's needs better and build trust by having that kind of dedicated um, clinician um, uncoupled from the kind of crisis piece uh, of the response. And so um, happy to provide additional kind of um, 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 materials describing kind of the implementation and our vision, um, our shared vision um, with the fire department and department emergency management about the evolution, but we are committed um, as demonstrated by, you know, our efficacy so far and supporting kind of um, with behavioral health supports, um, people both in the midst of the crisis, um, you know, peers are also a part of the program. So there's peers and behavioral health clinicians um, and really, um, we believe that this reorganization will allow our behavioral health clinicians to have um, more dedicated trust building um, work with folks um, that the the um, model previously didn't didn't allow for. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Member Catalano. Just to briefly follow up on that, I'm not sure that I understand what the transition is. So there, what is being added or taken away from those teams in the newer model? Uh, I believe, and sorry, I'm, I'm trying to keep my tabs on the details of lots of programs. And so I wanna make sure that um, I'm representing that, but I believe that our behavioral health clinicians are going to be decoupled from the um, EMTs and peers who will be the initial responders to a crisis. And then we will 
um, provide that follow-up with the clinicians and our, uh, our follow-up teams to better support folks um, uh, in, the, in that longer time period than just the initial crisis stabilization um, piece of it. So behavioral health clinicians will no longer be on the immediate rig responding peers will remain is my um, understanding, but um, I will definitely circle back um, with the, the description of um, the changes um, through Jesse for you all to make sure that the record is correct. I don't want to misrepresent and I'm sorry that I don't know the details as well as I, I wish I did um, in trying to prep you all for budget and all those decisions. So um, hopefully give me a little more time by the March budget kind of discussions, we can definitely provide um, better description of the plans ahead for SCRT. Chair, I had one last question, if I may, which is just how much um, of the mental health SF budget is Prop C is not the sole funding source, right? It's also pulling down some Calium funds or other funding sources. Is that correct? Yes, we do. We receive some um, general fund funding for mental health SF programs. We've um, applied for state funding um, for some of our capital programs. There is CalAIM funding um, as well for some of the programming. So we do. Um, uh, Propsy provides about $60 million of funding that aligns with the four mental health SF key domains, which is expansion of new beds. Uh, new beds and residential care programs, office of coordinated care, care coordination, and case management expansion, um, as well as street crisis response team. And the fourth one is, oh, my brain went on me, office of coordinated care. This is my job, you guys. What is the fourth one? Anyways, I'm in the hot seat. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, but we do, um, uh, it is about four, uh, $60 million, um, aligns with those mental health SF domains. The fourth one is the Mental Health Service Center. Sorry about that, um, which is the expansion of kind of our access points um, for the programs. Did you have additional questions, uh, Member Catalano? Okay, um, at this time we do need to transition. So thank you so much, Director Kirkpatrick for being in the hot seat and answering all of our, our questions and we'll continue the conversation uh, into March. So now we're gonna move, I believe uh, Director Simmons is here with us to guide us through the HSH uh, permanent housing shelter and hygiene as well as problem solving implementation. So welcome Director Simmons. Thank you so much, Chair Williams. Good morning, everybody. Noelle Simmons, Chief Deputy Director with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Nice to see you all today. Um, thanks, Jesse, for managing the slides. Let's go to the next one. So uh, let me start by with an apology. I've got about 20 densely packed slides of updates to provide to you all this morning in 25 minutes. So I apologize. I'll be speaking quickly. Um, but obviously, HSH is responsible for administering a significant portion of the Prop C funds. We've had a very busy first eight months of the fiscal year, and I'm really excited to report out on our progress today. Um, our annual spending plan for this year is about $260 million across the domains of housing, shelter, and prevention. 
which are the areas that I'll be reporting on today. As previous speakers said, despite the significant revenue uncertainty with Prop C, HSH really has not paused or slowed down on implementation of any Prop C funded programs. We've been moving full steam ahead. Um, the vast majority of funds in our annual plan are committed, but by necessity, the department has had to stagger the rollout of all of these new programs and services. And so as a result, not all funds will be fully expended by the end of the fiscal year, as you saw in the six month report. Um, Proxy has really enabled super exciting and much needed investments in the homeless response system. The department is really proud of the significant scaling up that the system has achieved so far this year and appreciative of this committee's support to make all of this possible. So without further ado, I'm going to um, start with an update on the permanent housing investments of Prop C. I'm going to start with our single site PSH programs. Um, the city has acquired six new sites through Prop C with a total of 625 units. And we have also been successful in leveraging over $135 million in competitive state home key funds uh, for these buildings to make our proxy funds stretch even further. And so part of the six month savings that you see most notably in the Tay permanent supportive housing bucket um, are a result of the fact that we were able to secure state dollars to fund the some of the upfront acquisition costs and initial operating subsidies for these buildings, um, allowing us to retain proxy for future acquisitions. We acquired four buildings in fiscal year 21-22, which Prop C is funding the operating support for. I won't list each of these sites. I'll just let you kind of take a look at those. In the current fiscal year, we closed on the purchase of two new buildings, City Gardens at 333 12th Street. This is a particularly exciting purchase because it represents 200 units that will be added to our family permanent supportive housing portfolio. Um, Abode is our provider at that site, and we are currently working with the Housing Authority to try to bring 50 federally funded project-based vouchers to that site, which again will bring a new revenue source and, and generate some savings in Prop C. The second site that we purchased this fiscal year was 685 Ellis Street. This was one of the former SIP hotels. It closed as a SIP in December. Um, but we have now acquired this 74 unit building. It is currently operating as a non-congregate shelter program, but the department's plan is to convert this site to permanent supportive housing. Timing still a little bit TBD, but, but likely towards the end of the year. And then in process right now, we are still seeking to acquire one or two additional TAY sites. We have a few prospects that we are doing due diligence on um, and one site that we acquire for Tay will be dedicated to serving trans, transgender and gender non-conforming youth as part of the Ending Trans Homelessness Initiative, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. Next slide, please. Also in the site-based um, bucket, so Propsy, as you know, funded rehabilitation and seismic upgrades at the Diva and the Granada, our first two city-owned sites acquired with home key funds. Um, those buildings are both being occupied during the rehab. Granada is about 40% occupied and we expect full lease up in the summer of 2024. Granada is, I'm sorry, that was the Granada. The Diva is about 50% occupied and should be fully leased up by the end of, of 2023. 
This year's Prop C budget included an $8 million investment in pre-development funding in a new family PSH site. Uh, it is located at 2530 18th Street. Mercy is the developer and Homeless Prenatal Program is the service provider. This is a site that we're jointly investing in with MoCD. It's 73 units in total. 36 uh, of which will be permanent supportive housing for homeless families. The balance will be affordable and that site will begin construction in 2024. Um, this committee will recall that we made a significant investment this year, what we called equity investments in our permanent supportive housing portfolio. These investments were really intended to bring up the quality of service provision in our legacy PSH sites. We contributed um, 19 million in total, 12 million of which came from Prop C to institute wage floors for case managers in, in PSH, which is part of our equity agenda, and also to reduce case management ratios to one to 25 across our adult portfolio and one to 20 in the Tay and family sites. The wage enhancements were effective retroactive to the start of the fiscal year and funds have been allocated for case uh, management hiring, which is underway now. Um, as I said at the top of my remarks, most of our funds are committed. There are some exceptions to that, which I'll be noting throughout our presentation. We have a relatively small amount, a little under a million dollars allocated as of this fiscal year for Tay Bridge housing. That is one-time funding, which the department has not yet implemented. Um, quite honestly, we've struggled a little bit to figure out how to deploy a relatively small amount of one-time funding for, for a new ongoing program. Next slide, please, Jesse. I'm going to be moving now to some updates on our scattered site housing portfolio, um, which, as you know, Prop C has uh, allowed us to expand quite significantly. Starting with the adult scattered site programs, um, 500 adult flex pool slots, recalling that flex pool is a permanent housing subsidy, are now in contract. Um, 350 of those slots were for older adults age 60 plus. 150 for younger adults, 18 to 59. Um, Prop C also funded this year 25 dedicated slots uh, for the flex pool in Bayview. Again, one of our um, highest need communities and a part of our intentional effort to invest in underserved, overrepresented populations. Across all of those 525 slots, roughly half have been enrolled and the other are in process with referrals being made through the adult coordinated entry system. Um, towards the end of the budget process this year, the board allocated $4 million for flex pool subsidies for cisgender women. That was an allocation of $4 million in one-time funds. We are preparing to launch the provider selection process for those subsidies, uh, which means that we'll probably be implementing services right at the start of the new fiscal year, July 1st. One update for the committee uh, this morning is that while the original intent was for these dollars to fund permanent flex pool subsidies, because the $4 million is a one-time funding source and because we know that there is a declining revenue base for, for OCO, uh, the department is intending to procure those as time-limited rapid rehousing subsidies rather than permanent flex pool subsidies. Um, <clears throat> having said that, I just want to make a note that 
We know there are many uh, vulnerable women who are in need of, of housing subsidies, and they, they should be able to and are able to take advantage of all the resources in our housing portfolio, not just this new rapid rehousing contract. Um, our FHSP program to date has in 31% uh, of its enrollees have been women as compared to 34% homeless women in the pit count. So just slightly underrepresented and we will continue to work on making sure that vulnerable women have access to both flex pool and rapid rehousing. Let's go to the next slide, Jesse. Um, speaking of rapid rehousing, so the current year budget includes funding for 350 medium term rapid rehousing slots. Those have been deployed um, a little over half are filled, the rest are in process. The committee may recall that there was a commitment to pair workforce development services with these rapid rehousing slots, recognizing that with a time limited housing subsidy, it's really important that we work with our participants to increase their income so that when the subsidy ends, they're able to sustain the rent payment on their own. Um, the workforce services have been implemented through a partnership with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development. Um, and those services are in place and, and serving our rapid rehousing clients. We've done a lot of really close partnership with OED in recent years to try to bring closer integration between the homeless response system and the workforce development system. In addition to employment services, we are also funding smart money coaching services. That's financial, financial coaching for our rapid rehousing participants. So that service is available to 100% of our participants as well and is showing positive outcomes in terms of helping people to increase their credit scores. Next slide, please. So scattered site TAY programs. Um, this year we have deployed 50 new TAY flex pool slots. Um, that funding was awarded to a new provider to the HSH portfolio, Unity Care. We had partnered a bit with Unity Care in the rollout of the emergency housing voucher program, but this is our first direct grant to them. They have a lot of experience implementing scattered site programs in other California counties. And this partnership strengthens our investment in black led organizations uh, in line with our equity goals. The second bullet on this slide is in regard to the Rising Up program, which of course is where the lion's share of our reinvestment in Tay Rapid Rehousing is. Um, Rising Up is a public-private partnership that was launched in January 2019 with the goal to serve 400 youth through the Rapid Rehousing program, and we are on target to meet that goal by the end of the fiscal year. Moving on to scattered site family programs. Um, the department has recently awarded Compass Family Services to implement our first family flex pool program. That program is funded at the level of 165 slots that will be starting shortly this quarter and continuing through next fiscal year. Compass was also awarded the Family Housing Ladder Program. Um, just as a reminder, Housing Ladder is intended for permanent supportive housing residents who are ready to move on to less intensively um, staffed housing. Um, specifically, Housing Ladder will be serving residents who have been in PSH for at least 24 months, are demonstrating stability, and are not relying on or utilizing intensive case management services. That program is currently accepting applications, and we expect to start making referrals in April. 
And then final bullet on this slide is uh, flexible funds for family rapid rehousing subsidies. This was also an add back at the end of uh, the budget process this summer. That funding has been allocated for a variety of purposes, including subsidy extensions uh, for families that are not ready to exit their subsidy after 24 months program incentives, and we also increased the, the payment standard for our family subsidies um, because we were a little bit under market relative to other subsidy programs, and this will allow us to compete for landlords a little bit better. I also want to note that with lots more family permanent supportive housing coming online in the coming months, there are also lots more opportunities now for families who are not stabilizing in rapid rehousing programs to be able to transfer to PSH. Um, so hopefully over time, we'll have a reduced need for extending time limited subsidies. Uh, next slide, please. The Ending Transgender Homelessness Initiative. This year, the mayor's budget included funding to launch this really exciting work to meet the housing needs of trans and gender nonconforming people who are both overrepresented and underserved in the homeless response system. Um, there were several prongs to this investment, um, including on the HSH side, a commitment to provide 150 permanent rent subsidies through the flex pool program for this population. We've been uh, in a planning process with our partners at the Office of Transgender Initiatives, MOCD, and the Department of Public Health. And we are preparing to release um, a, a procurement for a service provider to deploy these 50 subsidies. And that will be going out uh, shortly in the next month or, month or so. The final update for the Scattered Site Program is related to the Emergency Housing Voucher Program. Um, as you all know, the EHVs are federally funded vouchers, kind of think of them as a permanent Section 8 type voucher. They're tenant based. San Francisco received 906 vouchers um, and we um, have had applications submitted for almost all of those. 517 households have actually been housed through EHV. And we're particularly proud again of our progress in meeting the equity goals that we sent for this program of vouchers issued 90% of the heads of household identified as being BIPOC, um, which is really phenomenal. And I think um, probably puts us ahead of where most other communities are nationally. As a reminder, Prop C funded support services for some of the EHV holders. And I apologize, there's actually a typo on this slide. Prop C funded support services for 246 EHV holders, not 391. So we will correct that before we post the slide deck. Um, all voucher holders have been offered housing location services and approximately 60% have opted into voluntary case management services. Okay, let's quick time check. Oh gosh, I need to speed up. Okay, shelter and hygiene. So next slide, please, Jesse. Um, Prop C provides ongoing operating support for a number of different shelter and other interim housing uh, interventions. The Pier 94 trailer program at Pier 94 continues to operate. Um, the Port Commission needs to approve um, an extension for us to remain at that site and we have initiated that conversation with the Port. 
safe sleep sites. As you know, were opened um, quickly in 2020 as a part of the city's COVID response. These were always intended to be temporary sites. We initially had six and we're now down to two, one on South Van Ness and one on Jennings Street in the Bayview. Those sites are both operating at full capacity, but we are planning to wind down both sites in uh, the coming year. Our current plan is for the South Van Ness site to wind down in tandem with the opening of the new Mission Cabin sites in the fall. And our Jennings Safe Sleep site will be winding down at the end of the fiscal year. Um, we're ever mindful of the need for more resources in the Bayview and are looking at other potential cabin sites in that area, though nothing to de definitive to report on that yet. Next slide, please. 33 Goff um, started as a safe sleep site, but is now operating as San Francisco's first cabin site. Um, we have 70 cabins and we are seeking a two-year extension of that site because the, the housing development that was planned for that site has been delayed. So that will give us an opportunity to extend. Prop C also funds operating costs for the Bayview Vehicle Triage Center. That site opened just over a year ago and has approximately 57 slots for vehicles. Uh, there was intended to be a phase two expansion of this site. Um, and unfortunately that has not been able to move forward due to significant delays in getting PG&E to electrify the site, to run power to the site. Um, currently we're operating on a state lands commission uh, lease to use the site and that lease expires at the end of the calendar year. Um, we're exploring whether or not it might be possible to extend that site, but uh, again, we don't yet have a final answer on that. Next slide, please. Prop C also supports uh, several of our navigation centers. Uh, those sites were decanted during COVID to reduce crowding. They have now reinflated back to their pre-COVID capacity. Um, nav centers were able to reinflate safely because they're lower density, have more modern HVAC systems, partitions between beds, et cetera. And so you can see the, um, the reinflated capacity at each of those sites. A quick note that Prop C also funds the NAV Center for Justice Involved Adults, which operates through a work order with adult probation. Next slide, Oasis Family Shelter. Um, I'm sure you all have been following the news about Oasis. This is our family shelter that was opened last year. At the moment, the shelter is not operating. The owners have decided to sell that site and the city is supporting no negotiations around the acquisition of the site so that it will be able to maintain as family shelter. We're very hopeful that that's going to move forward. And in the meantime, Providence Foundation, who is our operator at that site, is negotiating a lease extension for the shelter with the site owners so that the, the shelter would be able to kind of continue to operate while acquisition negotiations are underway. Um, conversations are moving in a positive direction and we hope that there will be a deal on this shortly. If for some reason uh, Oasis cannot remain a family shelter site, the department will quickly pivot to new site identification. 
the last update on shelter has to do with hotel vouchers, which we have branded rebranded as urgent accommodation vouchers. We are preparing to launch um, this program very shortly. The UAVs will be a low barrier 24 seven access program. Um, families will be able to access these vouchers both through designated referral partners and through self referral. And in addition to just funding the stay in a hotel, we will be providing linkages to coordinated entry services and housing focused case management. The family and pregnant persons vouchers uh, have been contracted through Compass, and we expect them to soft launch uh, within the next couple of weeks. The 24-7 referral line will launch uh, maybe in another month or two after they've staffed up. Uh, vouchers for DV survivors and Tay will be contracted through St. Vincent de Paul, and they are currently planning for an April launch. Okay, moving to our last area for updates, which is in the prevention bucket. Next slide, please. The department has successfully implemented a new access point for veterans through Swords to Plowshares. We have expanded problem solving services at all 12 of our family shelters and also enhanced problem solving capacity at all of the existing access points uh, through increased staffing and direct client assistance funds. One of the other initiatives we launched this year was a fiscal sponsor for problem solving funds through abode. This was really meant to take some of the administrative burden of um, administering problem solving dollars off of our access points, let them focus on direct client service delivery. And so far this seems to be working as planned. And then we have also launched housing location assistance for all family adult and Tay problem solving clients. Next slide, please. Um, two investments are uh, in process and will soon hit the ground with new services. We'll have an access point for the justice involved population through San Francisco pretrial diversion. They will be opening very shortly. And I think one exciting aspect of this program is that they will also be conducting uh, mobile coordinated entry to provide services to uh, the jail population in San Francisco. And then we also have a direct cash transfer pilot for Tay that is funded through Prop C. Larkin Street is our uh, contracted provider and we'll be launching this program next month. This is also really exciting. Um, Larkin is gonna be taking part in a national um, pilot of direct cash transfer programs that will be evaluated by Chapin Hall. And so we really are excited to be looking at the efficacy of direct cash transfer as an intervention to help young people stabilize their housing. Next slide, please. Um, also in process, we are planning a two-year workforce services pilot with some of our prevention dollars. Again, this is in close partnership with OED and the Homeless Workforce Collaborative. Um, this will start, we are, we are developing a funding and allocation plan now with OED and those dollars will be added to contracts starting with the new fiscal year on July 1st. Um, we're projecting at the moment, we're still negotiating budgets, but thinking that the Prop C allocation for this pilot will be approximately $3.6 million spent over two years. That's a slightly lower number than what we had originally talked about uh, 
last year we had been thinking it might be more like $5.8 million. But again, we've been doing a lot of planning work and the adjusted amount is partly due to a clearer assessment of funding needs and capacity, as well as more clarity around the service and outcome objectives for this pilot. Next slide, please. Uh, just two more slides, everybody, and then we'll be done here. So also in process right now is implementation of skills training for all access point staff, as well as contracts with two new problem solving providers outside of the access points. Um, originally, we had planned a larger investment in skills training. We have decided based again on an assessment of needs that about $400,000 will be able to achieve the skills training needs for access points. And we've been able to reallocate some of those training dollars again to fund two new problem solving providers outside of access points. And that procurement is on the street right now. Next slide, targeted homelessness prevention. So you all are familiar with our ERAP program, Emergency Rental Assistance Program. This is a jointly implemented program between HSH and MOCD. Um, that program was really going gangbusters um, over the past year, but we paused on accepting applications in late September in order to work through a backlog of applications. We took the opportunity of that pause to also relook at our ERAP policies and procedures, and we're slated to reopen a redesigned program at the end of this month. The redesign program will really focus on targeting financial assistance to the households who have the highest risk of homelessness or housing loss, who are extremely low income and have experienced a financial hardship. Uh, to date, HSH has assisted over 1,700 households with approximately $10.6 million in assistance, and MoCD has, an, has assisted an additional 4,286 households with $35.2 million in assistance through ERAP. So that's just been an invaluable program as all of the eviction moratoriums came to an end over the past year. Final slide, just a reminder that we also made a Prop C investment this year in bringing um, the tenant share of rent across our PSH portfolio to no more than 30% of household income. And that is now our policy and is in effect. All right, I went three minutes over. Uh, sorry about that. And I think we have a few remaining question, uh, minutes for questions. Yes, thank you so much, Director uh, Director Simmons, for that really thorough overview. Um, we'll go to Member Friedenbach. Oh my God, what a whirlwind. <laughs> Little peek into the department. Um, <laughs> so. Um, thank you so much. A lot of exciting stuff happening. Um, okay, so the workforce thing that's being decreased down from 5.8 to 3.6, is that the rapid rehousing piece or that's the prevention piece? Um, I have a few questions, quick questions. That's the prevention piece. Okay. The, the rapid rehousing program was funded at 1.2 million and that's level funded. Okay, because I think on the rapid rehousing, we're having an issue around underutilization as well. And so I'm just just wanted to kind of maybe we could get a report out of uh, get that information back at a at a future meeting. And maybe there's some kind of adjustments that we can do in next year's budget to sort of open that up. I'm a little concerned generally 
that um, that there's a lot of need out there that we're not tapping into around the workforce piece. Um, and just want to think more about that. The trans subsidies, is it 150 or 50? Uh, the commitment that the department made was for 150, but we're starting with this initial investment of 50. So that's what we're putting out to, to procure now. Okay, and then the other 100 would come next fiscal year or what's the? Yes, we're still planning around the additional 100. At, at, to be completely honest, at the time we made the commitment, we were thinking that we would get another tranche of EHV vouchers. Those have not yet materialized. And so we're regrouping around the other 100, but we remain committed to that number. Oh, does it look like there won't be any more EHV or we don't know? You know, I, I'm not going to try to predict what our new split Congress will, will appropriate or won't appropriate. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, okay. So the cabins is there, um, and you guys probably have, so apologies if I'm being master of the obvious, um, has there been consideration for doing the cabins at the existing mission, um, uh, where the tents are now? I'm just thinking of 33 golf and then that ended up being a little bit easier of a transition. Um, with the neighborhood opposition and all the stuff going on there? Or is that site going to be developed soon? No, we, we have a different site in mind for the new mission cabins. We're targeting uh, 16th and Mission where the Walgreens and the Dollar Street store right. were. Um, I, I, the existing Safe Sleep site would not get us the same capacity that we'll get at 16th okay. and Mission. Um, and there's also been just just some some challenges and pushback with the neighbors in the vicinity of the Safe Sleep. Okay. Um, and then another question, um, last question, um, on the Oasis, are we going to, um, and you don't have to answer this now, but I think something to consider, um, anticipated savings and operating if we're able to stay at the site and it's purchased, um, and presumably we would not be spending $80,000 a month on rent anymore. And I don't know what that number would decrease to, but it would be great as we're planning for next year, as this is rolling out, hopefully by the time everything's finalized, we'll know what's happening with the Oasis, but um, I just wanted to put that little thing out there. Yeah. Thanks, Member Friedenbach. We will keep that in mind and come back to the committee with an update. Okay. Thank you so much. Fingers crossed it's going to work. Thank you so much, Director Simmons. Um, we do need to pivot to our final presentation, but I just want to thank you so much, Director Simmons. I know it's a, a large part of our, our of our fund, and it was just a really good to do a deep dive on where things are at and continue to have this conversation. So thank you so much. We are now going to transition to MOHCD um, to discuss eviction prevention and targeted homeless prevention implementation. And um, we have someone here from the department. I'm not sure who. Um, but I will turn on. Oh, we have Brian Chu here. So, Director Chu. Director Chu, or oh, you're muted. Sorry. Okay. No, I'm sad. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Commissioners. Um, Brian Chu, Director of Community Development here at the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, uh, filling in for Hugo Ramirez, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, so I, I I feel a little deficient. I, I really just have one slide for you all, <laughs> but um, but we'll go for this one slide. And then if you if you have any questions, I'll try and answer them, or I'll I'll get back to you. So. Um, we really have uh, uh, two big pieces. One is our 
uh, eviction prevention and housing stabilization piece, which is divided into four different areas. Uh, first is what we call tenant right to counsel, um, and that is full scope uh, legal defense for all those people that have received uh, unlawful detainer notices. Uh, we have nine providers and we allocate $7 million annually from OCO to support this. And it, we serve about uh, 1,100 households per year. And that's full scope from beginning to end. We also have, um, uh, in conjunction with that, we have tenants rights counseling um, for th some individuals, they need assistance to prevent homelessness, and it hasn't yet reached the courthouse, so to speak, um, and uh, is actually uh, much uh, more economically efficient to try and uh, work with them before it gets to that unlawful detainer notice. So we spend about $2.35 million annually from OCO uh, with six providers. Um, serving about 940 households. So those are know your rights trainings, outreach, information, everything sort of short of full scope uh, legal representation. Uh, the third area we call alternative dispute resolution. Um, and that's working with the Bar Association of San Francisco um, very directly. And that's really a, an, a mediation program. We uh, serve about 60 households per year costs us about $400,000 from OCO, and that's working with folks in subsidized housing when issues arise that we feel are really at risk of them being sort of 86 to out of the program, because we realize that for those folks um, that are in our subsidized housing, you know, once they're 86, that it's really hard for them um, to find other opportunities because that's all often the housing of last resort you know, short of going back into the shelter system. Um, and that's been actually uh, very successful. We've worked a long time with our affordable housing providers to try and understand what their needs are. We know that they need to create safe communities for folks, but we also know that, uh, you know, if people lose uh, their housing, often that they've received either through coordinated entry or sometimes through a lottery, um, they're unlikely to, to be able to find another place like that. Um, so some, some, some tough situation there, but uh, the Bar Association has been um, a very good partner with that. Um, and then uh, our fourth program under this uh, area is what we call our anti-displacement shallow rent subsidy. So that's for folks that need a little bit more assistance than our one-time uh, emergency rental assistance program. Um, and that allows for uh, an average monthly subsidy of up to $1,000. We have really one provider now, Eviction Defense Collaborative, that operates that program. We serve about 84 households uh, per year, um, and that's for extremely low-income households in rent control units who are paying at least 70% of their income towards their rent. Um, and then the, the last program we have actually comes from a slightly different budget, uh, bucket. It's from the housing bucket, and that is a program that was um, uh, advocated for through the SRO Families United Collaborative, um, and that is to provide uh, a larger monthly subsidy, subsidy of up to 2,900 per month um, for the, the whole program has about 144 SRO families. Um, the 2 million from OCO to us funds 41 uh, households through that program. 
um, again, and that's uh, through CCDC, Chinatown Community Development Center, um, and they're the one provider that operates that uh, uh, SRO deep rental subsidy program. Uh, so that's a sort of quick and dirty overview of our programming here. Um, happy to try and answer any questions you might have or get you the answers that you need. Thank you so much, Director uh, Chu. I'm going to go to Member Catalano. Hi there, Director Chu. Thanks for being here and thanks for that update. Um, I noticed under in the six-month report that Jesse shared at the beginning of our meeting that there is, I think it's about $17 million that are in the additional projected expenditures category, meaning they're not expenditures and not encumbrances within eviction prevention and housing stabilization. Um, and I was wondering if you or anyone else on the meeting is able to share a little more about that. Um, and if I'm, if it's sort of, um, you know, I think with some of, some of these, um, uh, funding buckets, we're seeing an expansion in services or new staffing. And so that explains kind of why there's some delay in getting, um, that funding out the door, but I'm wondering what, what's sort of the dynamic that's happening with the, um, with evic eviction prevention and housing stabilization. You know, I think for uh, at least a, a portion of that funding, um, we have some dollars that are not in those, those buckets yet that we um, had put aside for some other kind of, kind of pilot innovative programming to further support those folks that are most at risk um, and perhaps do some work specifically um, with uh, targeted population. So for example, we know that um, there is not currently an eviction defense or tenant rights organization whose primary focus is the African-American community. So we um, had thought about trying to put together a, a project where we could work with some existing Black-led organizations and see if we could reach people that weren't already being reached with some of our other providers. Uh, but we haven't been able to put those those dollars out yet. And, you, you know, honestly, because we haven't yet launched these new programs and we're also thinking about possible, you know, decreases in the monies coming in, we've been a little bit cautious about launching a new initiative if we don't actually know where those cuts might come you know, from next year, because uh, like for, that's a good example for, for that example, I, I would hate to launch a program where it looks like we're supporting like a black led tenant rights eviction defense kind of growth opportunity, and then have to stop that, right? Because that's, you know, so I think we're trying to figure out what's our priority for just keeping the steady state right now. Um, I, I wouldn't say that was the original intention. I just think that we had to launch these other programs first. And so we were a little late in getting these ones off the ground. And then just when we were thinking about it, we're trying to figure out now, does it make sense to create another potential obligation or do we just focus on that? So those are the, those are my two answers to you. It's a little bit of both. Thank you. Maybe in an, I know the department submit information to Jesse and the controller's office on implementation plans. So it'd be helpful to get a little more of a breakdown there because that's $17 million. Obviously not all of that was going to go towards the innovative programming. Um, so that'd be helpful to just get a little more detail yeah. in the future. Yeah. Sure. 
Voting Member Friedenbach. Um, thank you, Chair Williams. Um, thank you for that presentation. A um, couple questions. Um, do we have a success rate for the right to counsel? Uh, I can get that for you. The last kind of very focused presentation we did was probably at least a year and a half ago that we did for Supervisor Preston, where it was, uh, it, it actually was a, a very high success rate and uh, interesting enough that the highest success rate was actually within the African-American population. Um, but we also somewhat attributed that to the fact that the unlawful detainers were probably based on much more specious reasonings for our black tenants. Um, but but we're, we're happy with that, right? I can get you that number, but but it's actually been proven to be um, a very successful program so far, but I'll get you that number. Great. I feel like just this is kind of like a, you know, a bit bigger picture kind of comment, but I do think around homelessness, um, prevention, uh, preventing homelessness remains one of our biggest challenges and kind of, when I said that a bit about the workforce piece er earlier, um, and I just think there's so much more uh, work that can be done in this area. Um, and, you know, the, the numbers from the, I mean, they're a little bit dated at this point because it was like over a year ago that, that the last pit happened, but um, it, it, you know, we had four people entering homelessness for one, one getting out of homelessness. So obviously we, I mean, I think it's really important for us to shift that. So anyway, that, that I think I'm just really, yeah. Um, I wanted to emphasize how important this work is and um, how uh, much more we have to learn and grow and figure out what's working and what's not working. And it's really important for us to be nimble. Um, yeah. yeah, I will get that for you. And I'll, I'll figure out how to present it because I think for those of you that have been involved in the work, um, the actual types of cases vary tremendously. So we'll have to break down because there can be so many different kinds of outcomes depending on where we are. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll bundle all that up and, and get you a, a snapshot of, of okay. where we've been. Okay. That would be fantastic. Huh? Um, the other thing is that, um, uh, the alternative dispute, um, pre-existed before Prop C. So did the 400,000 pay for an expansion of those services or? It did. It did. Yes. It did expand those services. I, I promise there, there was no, uh what's it, preemption, whatever that, the thing that we're not allowed to do with these funds, yes. Um, yes, it did expand those services specifically so that we can dedicate um, uh, specific hours just to those folks that are most at risk. Because in general, the program was open to a broad variety of folks that work with the Bar Association, and many of those folks are not necessarily your target population, right? They're, they're at risk, but not imminently homeless and that's what we wanted to prioritize with your dollars. Yeah, and this last thing um, uh, is just that we're having a, I mean, you know, and I know your department's been involved in it, but you know, we continue to have an eviction problem in our supportive housing um, and um, mm -hmm. it disproportionately impacts people with behavioral health and um, um, members of the African-American community and so, um, I know there's been a bunch of work with the Housing Rights Committee to try to push this along, and there has been a lot of recommendations. And I just wanted to see if um, if there if you know if there's been if you feel like there's been progress in that area. Um, there's a huge disparity between the way that different 
uh, supportive housing providers deal with evictions and, um, you know, uh, evicting for, you know, non-payment of rent, for example, seems like a low bar uh, thing that could be corrected. And, and some of the other stuff is more complicated, but um, just wanted to know if you had any updates or thoughts on that. You know, I, I guess I would say that we, um, well, what I can say is that we're working very closely with HSH to come up with a strong housing stabilization framework that would do our best to minimize the eviction that you're talking about. I mean, I, I do think that those people that are in PSH um, locations are precisely the ones that, if they lose that, right, there, there's not, almost nothing left for them, right? Because, uh, and sometimes those are very challenging folks to have in those community settings. It, it, it's difficult. Uh, so I think our goal is to minimize those evictions. I honestly can't say that we were moving towards a, a zero eviction rate, because I think in some cases that that might be you know, the, the last alternative. Um, but I agree with you that I think what we're trying to do is, like for some people, can we set up um, um, uh, like a, a, a payee system, right? Because if there's money coming in, sometimes people, they're just not in a place to remember to pay the rent, right? <laughs> um, and and then they, they run into problems because they're, they're just not able to, to do what they need to do, which could be set up with that kind of payee system. That doesn't work for everybody because I do think that there's some issues that are kind of over and beyond that. Um, but but I will say that we're working with Noel and her team and Salvador and Julieta uh, and uh, um, consultant that we've brought in with, with Mary that we've brought in along with all of our housing side of the folks that have connections with all of our affordable housing developers to see if we can kind of work with them and their property managers. I think it's often sometimes a combination of the organization, but sometimes just the property manager at that specific site, right? Um, that has some challenges. So um, I think we're coming up with a pretty good framework. Um, we realize it is the housing of last resort. Um, so that's what I can say about that piece, yeah. Thank you, appreciate. Thank you so much, uh, Director Chu, and I apologize. I've been sneezing over here with allergies. <laughs> um, so at this time, if there's no additional uh, comments from the committee, um, I, I want to thank you, Director Chu, for uh, coming and subbing for Hugo and uh, for sharing information with us, and we'll definitely continue the conversation. Right. I want to move to Secretary Hom if there's public comment. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2489391-5052. The password is 123. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. I do see a caller. I'll take the first caller. Hello, caller. If you can press star six to unmute yourself, you can begin your comment. My name is Francisco da Costa, and I've been listening to this presentation. 
So I would like to remind everybody that we have to read the housing element and figure out how we're going to come up with the 82,000 brand new housing units while reflecting on the 45 million square feet vacant commercial space we have in the financial district and in other places, and the over 70,000 homes that are vacant all over San Francisco. And I would like you all to do a needs assessment, a real needs assessment, on how do you all plan to address quality of life issues. Uh, anyone can ramble and say we have, we have uh, acquired so many buildings and uh, we have uh, tried our best to put people under a roof, but we have to come up with a solution. Why is it that we see so much homelessness in San Francisco today? February 23rd, 2023. Why? Why have we, with intent in the past, focused on market rate housing and not on affordable housing to those making under 60,000 or 80,000? And then we have to talk about the matrix that I just pointed out to you all to see how y'all can really come up with a solution. We have people, seniors, living in trailers, where there's prostitution going on, reported in, our, in some of our investigative reporting in SF standard. Thank you, caller. Your time is up. I'll see if we have any additional callers. I do not see any additional callers. So there's no additional public comment for this agenda item. Thank you so much, Secretary Hammond. Thank you to our public commenters. Um, at this time, um, we will now move, I believe, to our future um, agenda items from committee members. Is there any future agenda items? Okay, seeing none. Oh, actually, I see uh, Member Friedenbach. Um, yeah, well, I think two kind of came up today and maybe they could be incorporated into the budget discussions, but um, kind of coming back on um, some more details around the prevention pieces that Nina brought up that included like success rates and stuff. And then the other thing that came up, I think, was around the workforce, um, especially connected to the rapid rehousing um, and that one. Yeah, so those would be my two. Thank you so much, Member Friedenbach, and just for our staff, if you could capture um, those two items, that'd be great. I will go to Member Catalano. Yeah, similarly, I wanted to build off a, a thread that Member Friedenbach has offered over some of our meetings, which is I would love a better understanding from um, the departments how like the scope of impact assessment that they're doing across various programs so that we can help 
understand the impact of different interventions with, between each bucket and kind of understand as we move forward, recommendations we could make about rebalancing within the buckets as needed. Um, prevention is kind of a stark example of that, where we've got a lot of different types of interventions funded um, at different rates. And so being able to identify what's actually um, the most effective at homelessness prevention, um, which is the charge, um, that would be really helpful moving forward. And that's an ongoing, you know, an ongoing piece of work, but something that would really be helpful to understand what's currently being evaluated and then when we might be able to bring in new information to update our understanding. Thank you so much, Mark Catalano. And I do want to um, point out, like, in terms of the data work group and sort of that system modeling um, process, I, I believe there's still some of that work happening. And Jesse, I don't know if we can just get an update on that tied to member Catalano's comments, um, where we are at with that, with the work group. Sure. So at the March meeting, the committee will receive um, a presentation from HSH about the strategic planning, um, the strategic plan, not the planning process, the plan, uh, which includes modeling. So uh, that presentation is upcoming. Um, and yes, and then looking ahead to kind of summer and fall at, at new projects for uh, the data working group. That sounds like a great one. Great, thank you so much. Any additional future items? I um, had an item around the racial equity, the Office of Racial Equity. I know we talked about, um, you know, kind of aligning uh, more, more alignment with the work that they're doing. And so would love to hear an update. I know there's a reparations um, hearing that is coming very soon. So maybe if it aligns in March, we could um, have them come and, and share some of that work that they're doing as it relates to um, our body of work around preventing homelessness. So I um, wanted to highlight that. And with nothing else, Secretary Hom, do we have public comment? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2489 The password is 1234. Then press pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. We do have a caller. I'll take the first caller. Hello, caller. Can you press star six to unmute yourself? Thank you. My name is Francisco de Costa. And this is a very important topic, housing. And I'm amazed that we get so few callers calling in. And I think we have to do some sort of outreach to the advocates so that we can really address uh, some very pertinent and salient issues, uh, mostly impacting our seniors with uh, Laguna Honda and those um, segments of the population who are mentally and physically challenged. And those uh, living in tents more in this very inclement weather. And um, 
and say some more about Proposition C. Initially, the mayor was not in favor of it. Now she is. I think the people should know more about this commission and the role of Proposition C. Thank you very much. Thank you, caller. I'm checking the attendee list now for any additional callers, and I do not see any for this agenda item. Thank you so much, Secretary Hellman. Again, thank you to our public commenters. Um, just a little bit additional on this item. Um, I would also like to talk about our community engagement um, sort of efforts with the full body um, for this year. Um, I know that we in the past have had very robust uh, listening sessions, hundreds of providers, hundreds of community members engaging in those providing us really valuable feedback around a number of these issues. Um, so I want to continue to do that um, for this year. Um, with that, um, I will entertain a motion to adjourn. Um, we don't have quorum, but I'll move to adjourn anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have to stay on forever because we don't forever. have <laughs> I think our staff would leave us at some point. <laughs> Is there a second? I think we can adjourn out. That's just fine. Second. All righty, so um, um, Secretary Hom. Right, I'll call the roll just, just so we have it on record. Member Catalano? Yes. Member Cunningham-Denning? Absent Vice Chair D'Antonio? Absent Member Friedenbach? Yes. Officer Ledbetter? Absent Chair Williams? Yes. All right, we are adjourned at 11.34 a.m. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone.